Well, as we come and we uh, get into the book of 1 Corinthians, we actually, in the course of two weeks, we covered verses 1 to 23. And we are going to take the same amount of time to go through 23 verses to go through 4. Um, so obviously next week we will not be... Um, we will not be uh, into the book of 1 Corinthians. Pastor Dennis is going to give the Easter sermon. Uh, but, but we're going to talk about this passage this week, and then we're going to come back to it the week after Easter. Because these verses are, there's so much packed into these verses. And I would say they're very familiar to most of us, but I just want us to re-engage with this text and really think, I may know these verses, but do I know them? Am I living them? Am I living in light of them? So as we jump into the text, how many of you like races? You like watching races? Maybe not, I'm not talking about automobile races. For the sake of context, you like watching running races. Anybody? Okay, good. A few? How many of you like running races, or back in the day you like running in races? Same, this the same people, imagine that. Well, I have never been good at races. I, I found growing up that I don't have the speed for the short races, you know, the quick burst of energy, the quick burst of speed. Don't have the needed speed for the short races, and I don't have good endurance for the longer races. So uh, when I was in elementary school, we would have field day, and I would, I would always receive ribbons, first, second, or third place for at least a few of the various events we did, but races were usually not in the lineup of ribbons I received. And whether we like it or not, whether we like races or not, whether we've been good at races or not, the Apostle Paul compares the Christian life to a race. And as we'll see in a couple weeks, he also compares it to boxing. In addition to our text that we see Paul comparing the Christian life to a race here, we also see several other passages in the New Testament that Paul talks about the Christian life in terms of a race. We're going to share a couple of those with you. Um, the church, uh, in Galatians, the, the Christians in Galatia, they were struggling with going back to a works-based system. And Paul says, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Like the runner who's, who's geared for the prize, for the finish line. They're running well and they started to get distracted. A very fitting concept, running the race to what Paul's trying to say. We also read in Philippians 3.14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This is race terminology. 2 Timothy 4, 7 and 8, I have fought the good fight. Here we have two analogies together. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, 
which the Lord the righteous judge will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all those who love his appearing. And we, we could continue to go on. I just want to share with you one more verse, Hebrews 12, uh, 1 and 2. We're going to talk a little bit about this at the end of this morning, but Tim is right. It is such a fitting verse for Palm Sunday, the example of Jesus. Uh, Paul says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which, so, which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So just by these sampling of verses, why is running the race used so frequently to describe the Christian life? I believe it's because of all that's involved in a race. You don't just show up and run a race. Because of the, the training, the perseverance, the endurance, the discipline, the focus on the goal, on the final reward in a race. All of these things that are involved in a race is why it is such a good analogy to the Christian life. Because all of these things are necessary in our Christian life. So specifically in our passage this morning, we're going to see Paul's desire to run his race well. And as we are going through the context of the book of 1 Corinthians, he desires to run the race well, specifically in light of all the distractions that could get him or the Corinthian church off course. What are those issues? All of the issues that we have been, been speaking about throughout the book of 1 Corinthians. The most immediate issue is the demand for one's rights. That Paul goes through the whole chapter of, uh, the whole of chapter 9 and says, look at my example, church. I could claim rights, but for the sake of the gospel, I am not. I am willing to become all things for all people for the sake of the gospel. And what really leads into verse 24 is verse 23. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. You remember that share with them in its blessings? Uh, literally, it says that I may be a participant in the gospel, this gospel that he's sharing. So what does it look like to be a participant, a sharer of the good news of the gospel? It is one who runs the race well. That person is a participant in the gospel. They are sharers in the reality that the gospel is in their hearts and lives. So this morning, we're going to see once again that we must cling to what truly matters. What truly matters is faithfulness in the race of life. Faithfulness to Christ. 
This morning we're going to look at three realities of how we are to run this race that's called the Christian life. This morning we're going to look at two of those three ways. So let's open today with a word of prayer. Father, I pray for your blessing. Father, we know that where your word is proclaimed, where your word is preached, Father, you work. So Lord, we ask you to work in our midst. We ask you to cause us to have a renewed focus on what truly matters. Father, this week as we Uh, celebrate the Passion Week. Father, I pray that we would remember that You are the author and the finisher of our faith. That You have run this race and You have run it perfectly for us. You've paved the way so that we can then run in the strength that You provide. Father, teach us, instruct us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. If we are going to run the Christian race faithfully with the end goal in mind, number one, we will run the race, you will run the race knowing that it's yours to run. They say, Okay, we're starting off pretty basic, and and, and Paul starts out pretty basic. Look at verse 24. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run? That seems pretty pretty, uh, self-explanatory, doesn't it? Have you ever seen at the Olympics a... Um, the runners, they get up to the starting line, they get their, their feet and whatever you call those things, those little, those little holster, what? Starting blocks. starting blocks, yeah, you know, a very technical name. <laughs> and, and all of a sudden, everybody goes except one or two of them. And they're just like, yeah, I'm not feeling it today. No, in a race, every runner runs. And that's what Paul says here. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run? So what we have to realize, first of all, is that every Jesus follower is a runner in the race. If you are here this morning and you are a follower of Jesus, you are a a, a true Christian, you have have placed your faith in Jesus, you have have turned to Him, You uh, you have said, no to self, yes to Jesus. You've repented and turned to Christ. You are a runner in this race. You are not exempted. In a normal race, you usually volunteer to be in that race. And it was easy for these Corinthian Christians to think of themselves so pridefully, I have knowledge. These other weaker brothers don't. They need to really focus in on their Christian life. But I know what I'm doing. Paul's, Paul evens the playing field here. It doesn't matter if you think you are a strong Christian. It doesn't matter if you think other people are weak. We are all who claim the name of Jesus in the same race. 
In fact, Paul, once again, for the tenth time so far in the book of 1 Corinthians, and for the last time, he uses this phrase, do you not know? They should know this. However, we should not assume that we are living in light of this knowledge. Because like the Corinthian church, we need a wake-up call. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run? So what is the course in this race? If we're running, what is the course? What does it look like? The course for this race is life. It's all of life. There's no little offshoot to the race where we somehow are no longer in this race. In fact, it's interesting that in your, in your Bible, that word race, do you know that in a race, that's, that's, the, that's the word st- uh, stadio or stadio. What does that sound like? Stadium, right? It, it, it's, it's literally dealing a race in a stadium. In other words, another way you could, you could read this is, do you not know that all the runners in the stadium run? So there are those that are in the stadium, and there are those that are outside of the stadium. Everyone that Paul is saying, uh, metaphorically, spiritually speaking, that is in the stadium, that claims the name of Jesus, is a runner in the race. Now there's a picture that, uh, is on the screen for you, where you see, um, you see certain kids that, were, that are running in an ancient stadium. This picture was taken, I just found it online, this picture was taken in Greece. It was taken in the city of, of Delphi. And this is where one of the ancient games, uh, the city was, was the, the, the city uh, housed one of the local ancient games called the Pythian Games. And as you see from the stadium, um, it is not that the runners would run like we do today around the circle. The runners would run in a straight line. And if the race was, was, more, was a greater distance than just from the starting line on one end to the finish line on the other. Some races were that long. If they, the others were longer, they would run that entire distance and then you'd almost have to do a 180 and you would then run the other way. So you can imagine that would be kind of a chaotic scene, wouldn't it, for a runner? But just to give you an idea of what some of these stadiums look like, you see the picture there. Paul is bringing up this analogy to running to a race because it is all it's, uh, uh, sports are very familiar to his audience. Basically, what he is talking about here is a reference to what is called the Isthmian Games. These were biannual games. They were held every two years um, around the, ci- the city of Corinth. They were considered one of the four Pan-Hellenic games. Now you'll see a map overhead where you will see where uh, the general areas where these four games were held. And you see where Corinth was. That is where the Isthmian games were held. 
The stadium that you saw in the previous picture, that was located in the city of Delphi. The four games that they had, you'll recognize one of the names. They had the Isthmian Games, which were every two years. There was then the Olympic Games, does that sound familiar? That were held in Olympia. Those were every four years. You had the Pythian Games um, in Delphi, which is where that picture was located. And, uh, and then you had the Nemean Games. You see Nemea there. So right where Paul's audience, the church of Corinth, is, they, I mean, the games surrounded them. They, they were very familiar of, with races. And the honor, as we will talk about, that came with not simply just being an athlete, but being a victor. In these games, specifically we're talking about the games that were located near Corinth, the Isthmian games, there were foot races, there was wrestling, there was boxing, which Paul's going to talk about later in our text, there was discus and javelin throwing, there, was, there were um, uh, long jump, the long jump, of course racing, which Paul's talking about here, and get this, Lest you did not think you were an athlete, in the Isthmian games, they had reading, po- they had poetry reading and singing competitions. So you could call yourself an athlete by reciting poetry and singing. How many of you now can raise your hand and say you are an athlete? <laughs> there you go. That's your claim to boasting today. But all of that, all of that side stuff, just to to tell you that this analogy of running a race would bring certain images and certain ideals into the Corinthians' minds. And I think even in our day, we are a sports-oriented culture. You may not be individually, but our culture is. And when we think of athletes... We think of great dedication, great seriousness, great uh, commitment and focus that is involved. So man, then when we take that to the spiritual level like Paul is, and you realize I am in a race. And then we look at the spiritual commitment of our lives. What does that tell us? So, if we are going to run the race knowing it's yours to run, first of all, you have to answer the question, are you a runner in the race? Are you a follower of Jesus? Are you mentally aware that the Christian life that you are on is compared to a race that demands my total commitment? Second question Not only are you a runner in the race, but the second question we have to answer under this this theme of run the race knowing it's yours to run, who receives the reward? So Paul says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So notice the contrast. All 
1. Wow, what a difference here, right? All versus 1. Before we we talk about what, what this means, we have to first understand that unlike a normal race that the Corinthians would be used to and that we are used to, there is not a single winner when it comes to the spiritual race. The, the spiritual race that Paul is ultimately alluding to, this race is not a competition. In fact, far from it. We are to run helping one another, building one another up, edifying one another. The focus that Paul is bringing out here when he says only one receives the prize is that the focus has to be on each individual runner running to receive the prize. So in other words, even though we are with other brothers and sisters, and man, this race is unique that we want that all of us, we want to finish well. We are accountable to our, um, we are accountable and will give an account for ourselves. Paul says in Philippians 3.14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I press on. Did you know that word press on is the same word that we get persecute from? Paul talks about that he endured persecution for the name of Christ. And Paul says, man, that the same vigor that other people use against me to discourage me from following Jesus, it's that same vigor that I press on to follow Jesus. My eyes are on the prize. My eyes are on the finish line. And in the context of Philippians, the prize, he states in verse 11, he says that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. In other words, he says, I know what my future has. And I am running, I am pressing on to claim that inheritance that I know is mine. Who receives the reward? It is those who finish well. So we have to ask ourselves when we talk about this reward as well, what is the prize? What's the prize that Paul is talking about here? Only one receives the prize. Is the prize spiritual rewards? Well, there may be spiritual rewards that are given to believers But this is not Paul's focus here. Paul is not saying that I want these extra rewards to be given to me. These extra things. The focus of Paul's attention is the same that he just said in Philippians 3.14. I press toward the goal for the prize, which is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The the prize that he is talking about is his spiritual inheritance. It is the eternal life that's promised to all 
who place their faith in Christ. Paul is saying, that is my inheritance. That is my prize. You may say, Pastor Adam, and we're going to talk more about the implications of this, that it's not simply some type of extra spiritual rewards for being super committed Christians. No. But I just want to say right now, why do I say that it is eternal life itself? It is a spiritual inheritance. We are not talking about somehow you have to earn your way to heaven. No, but you remember in verse, 24, or verse 23, Paul just talked about sharing or participating in the blessings of the gospel. That, it, that Paul is doing all of these things in his life. He is staying committed to the course that God has called him to run so that he would be a participant in the very message that he proclaims. The opposite of receiving the prize, we're going to talk about in two weeks, Paul says in verse 27, is being disqualified. And then, the most important, and I'm not going to get into a lot of detail here because Pastor Dennis is going to be preaching on chapter 10. When we look at the context of what Paul means by running well and receiving the prize, not being disqualified, in chapter 10 in verses 1 to 13, he gives an example of those who started the race and were disqualified. Just very quickly, I want to read, Paul says in chapter 10, verse 1, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea. You remember the cloud that led the Israelites in the wilderness. You remember they passed through the Red Sea under the power of God. They were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. I'll let Pastor Dennis just, uh, explain that one to you. All ate the same spiritual food. All drank the same spiritual drink. Jump down to verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. They were disqualified. These things, verse 6, took place as examples for us. Verse 7, do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat, drink, rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. They were disqualified. We, verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. They were disqualified. Verse 10, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. They were disqualified. These things again happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So Paul is saying, let us not be disqualified like these, but let us run well to receive the prize of our eternal inheritance. Like what one uh, theologian, Tom Schreiner, says, he says, uh, the prize or the reward here is eternal life itself. It is not a reward above and beyond eternal life, 
The illustrations given from the life of Israel show that they did not enter the land because of their sin. So believers must run in the race to triumph, to enter the heavenly inheritance. I mean, you may say, well, Pastor Adam, how do, how do we tie this tension in our mind that, that our eternal inheritance, it is guaranteed, and yet we see that we must run well. Do you remember what Paul says? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. You see, these warnings are given to Christians. They're given to even those in the church that, that are not truly believers because these warnings combined with the Spirit of God in our hearts are the very means that God uses to persevere us in the faith. Those who are God's children hear these warnings and the Spirit works in our hearts and we continue to follow Him. Despite all the distractions, not that we're always on a, on a linear, going up trajectory. Our Christian life, we all know it's like this. But the Spirit of God keeps us. So what's the direct application here? This is the main command in these four verses at the end of verse 24. So run that you may obtain it. Obtain what? The reward. So in other words, we know that we are all runners in this race if we claim the name of Christ. We know that there is a prize that we are striving for, that, that, that we don't look to someone else how well they're doing or how bad they're doing and somehow think we are going to somehow gauge ourselves according to others. We take this understanding and we run in such a way to obtain the prize. So by application, let me ask you, how are you running the race? The text says here, if you know these things, so run. The so here implies that you are consciously running, aware that only one receives the prize and you are intent on obtaining it. You see, the awareness of the prize motivates us to run to obtain it. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6 and verse 12, he tells Timothy, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Here again, we have the idea of eternal life. And while it is promised to us, it is not according to our works, the Spirit of God working in us causes us to take hold of that reality in our hearts and to live in light of it. The Bible does not have room for someone that claims to be the name of Christ and has no desire to follow him. Many times we label that carnal Christian. But when we really read the scriptures, sometimes we have to scratch our head and say, Christian at all? 
And while we cannot ultimately be the judge of anyone's hearts, this is a wake-up call to us that, man, if the Spirit of God is living in our, truly living in our hearts, is that showing itself? Again, not that we gauge ourselves as a standard. I know in my life growing up, I probably, um, the Lord blessed me to be raised in a, in a pastor's home. Um, and, and I was raised, for, uh, I never remember not being raised uh, in the church. And I had to, still had to make that conscious decision to, to accept Christ as my Savior. Uh, I did that at around uh, four years of age. But man, I had lots of doubts after that and, and lots of prayers. Oh, Lord, if I'm not saved, please save me. And sometimes I would spin my wheels in that direction. And, and these type of wake-up calls are not meant to scare the sensitive in heart. Because the sensitive in heart need to realize that their total dependence is in Christ. I'm, growing up, I needed that preached to me. You're looking to Christ, not yourself. And the Scriptures are not giving warnings when we come across these warnings like we see in chapter 10 and like, we talk, like we're going to see about being disqualified. It's not giving those warnings to someone who is, being, who is conscientious about their faith. In fact, the very, the very fear, am I really saved? That in and of itself is an indicator that to be concerned about that, there's a consciousness about salvation. What we're talking about here is the person that just assumes, yeah, I'm a Christian, and there's never any desire. There's never even a fear that they're not. Their heart is far from God. It's hardened from God. There's no doubt or worry like the sensitive Christian. Do you see the difference? How are we running? Today, you may say, you know what? I need to focus less on being so me-centered and be looking this morning to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Others of you this morning may be saying, you know what? I haven't been thinking at all about how I'm running this spiritual race and I need to repent of that. And maybe there's a category of someone here today that says, you know what? I flippantly say I'm a believer, but man, if I'm truly honest with myself, I have no confidence of that. Run the race knowing it's yours to run. And then secondly, before we are done this morning, I want us to look at the second aspect that if we are going to run the race faithfully and well, what must be involved in our life, we must not only run the race knowing it is ours to run, not someone else's, we have to run the race by counting the cost. Verse 25 says this, Every athlete, ex uh, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. 
If we're going to run the race, we're going to be counting the cost. What does counting the cost look like? What does the end of verse 24, running that we may obtain the reward, look like? The following verses answer that. It's going to involve self-control. A purposeful self-control. What is the role and the mindset of the athlete that is training for his competition? uh, Here in verse 25, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. Everyone that that is running to win the prize, not just to look good, that at least they entered the race. The word here, athlete, that is used is the word that we get agony from. Another way of putting it, the one who engages in a contest exercises self-control. You see, every athlete must be willing to properly prepare for and endure the struggle of the athletic contest. I mean, woe to the person that says, hey, you know what? In my high school, I was a really good runner. I think I'm going to train for the Olympics, and they do that flippantly. What do you think is going to happen? To to illustrate this idea of self-control, I'd like to give you uh, two quotes that I think are very enlightening for us. Uh, The first one, I had my research assistant find for me, Rachel. <laughs> I was listening to, uh, um, on YouTube, they had her talks from the, from the retreat, and I was listening to uh, one of them, and I thought, whoa, that's a really good quotation. I'm going to have to steal that. So, so that I go home in, 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 uh, uh, in good stability of mind, I'm going to give Rachel the credit for finding this and not take it for myself. <laughs> Um, there's an athletic, uh, an athletic uh, athlete, Steve Messler. He was a gold medalist of the U.S. four-man bobsled team in 2010. And in an article, in an interview, they asked him this, what does it mean to have an Olympian mindset? So this is what it means for those of us, which is all of us who have never been in the Olympics. This is, this is how we would live with the mindset of an Olympian. Okay, listen to this. Having an Olympian mindset means that the Olympics are today. They're tomorrow. They were last Monday. And they were last November. Because you're living in a world where everything you do today is going to affect four years from now, three years from now, next year, or whenever the actual Olympic Games are. So you wake up and approach every day as if the Olympics are right now. That's reflected in everything you do. When I knew I had to get up at 7 a.m., I made sure I was in bed no later than 11 p.m. so I got enough sleep. If I ate an extra egg, that was six more grams of protein to help me get stronger. And if I did just one more rep in a set, I was going to get a little bit better. Just like the U.S. Olympic Committee slogan said a few years ago, 
It's not every four years, it's every day. Wow. What if we transferred that over to our spiritual life? How many of of you day after day after day, you know that there are spiritual decisions that you need to make? There are changes you need to, to make in your life, in the life of your family, but you're just letting day after day go by. You know that you need to be raising your children in the ways of the Lord, but you're letting your job, you're letting all of these circumstances get in the way of that, and somehow you're thinking it's going to all be okay in the end. You know, I can slough off on raising the kids now, And you know what? Maybe they'll still have that foundation they need to live in a counter-biblical world. Or you know what? I know that I need to be, men, the leader, the Christ-centered leader of my home. But you know, I'm just too busy now. I'm going to do it later. Man, if an athlete is going through the rigmarole as little as eating an egg, knowing that's going to somehow benefit me. And we are just going day after day after day with the things of our spiritual lives on the back burner. What is that going to do for us? Wow. Second quotation is dealing with this word, this biblical word that's used for an athlete, the word that we get agony from. And this was the mindset in the first century of an athlete. And I would say it's also the mindset of athletes today. It says, the struggle for the reward does not demand only full exertion, but also rigid denial. The final assault... Speaking of the athletic competition from which we get this word, agony, the final assault is so exacting that all forces must be reserved, assembled, and deployed in it. The final goal is so high and glorious that all provisional ends must fade before it. If the crown, this is the mindset of the first century Olympian, If the crown does not mean everything, nothing will be obtained. If a man is not ready to set aside his egotistic needs and desires and claims and reservations, he is not fit for the arena. This is not the asceticism of the monk who just suppresses the body. It is the manly discipline of the fighter controlling the body. You see, the athlete doesn't just deprive him of things because somehow it's making him spiritual. No, they will say no to things because they are mastering their body to get it into shape. And Paul here says, I am willing to say no to everything we just looked at last week. I would rather die than to cause an obstacle for the gospel, whether that's in my life or that's in the life of someone else. That is the type of commitment that Paul is saying we too must have. 
It is a, it's a purposeful self-control. And as we've just seen from these two examples, it's a rigid self-control. Verse 25, every, every athlete exercised self-control in what? In some things? No, in all things. I thought it was funny, a couple, well, now it was longer. Uh, growing up in Orlando, I was a huge Orlando Magic fan. Uh, I still am an Orlando Magic fan, but as one of the, the worst teams in the NBA right now, I don't claim it as much as I used to. Um, they had a, a fellow by the name of Dwight Howard. You hear of him? Probably heard more of him a decade ago. Um, he's kind of, kind of a has-been player. Uh, didn't quite live up to the, uh, the potential that many thought he had. Did you know that one of the things his trainers had to really get on to him about is he had such an addiction to wanting to eat candy that it was starting to affect him physically. And they had to say, Dwight, if you're going to reach your full potential, lay off the candy. Something that minuscule was being a hindrance to him athletically. I mean, when you look at him, you'd never think there were any hindrances. I mean, his shoulder muscles were were the size of my head, it seemed like, uh, plus the biceps and everything else. You'd be like, man, you could probably eat a few more boxes of candy. It's not going to hurt you. But not at the level that he was called to, to be a participant in. You see, the all things there don't have a parenthesis except this. And that's why Hebrews 12, it says, let us cast aside every weight, those things that are hindering us. It's a rigid self-control. You see, the dedicated athlete could not pick and choose his regiment. Again, just to help us understand what Paul's saying back in the first century, uh, one individual said this about Olympic athletes back then. He said, Olympic athletes had a reputation for strictly exercising self-control in sex and diet. The athletes, according to some accounts, swore an oath that they did not have sexual intercourse, eat meat, or drink wine for 10 months prior to the games. That was one avenue of their focus and self-control. Now, when we look at this historically, don't those three issues ring a bell as to what we're covering right here as we look at chapters 8 to 10? Eating meat, sexual relations, Drinking wine, which was associated with idolatry. Wow. This is very familiar to what we read in chapter 6 to 10. You see, a lack of self-control, what it equaled was a forfeiture of the race. Every athlete exercises self-control. And then get this as we um, start to wrap up. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we, an imperishable. I mean, these athletes are willing to deny themselves and to go through the rigor, the agony of training and of the athletic competition. They're willing to be number one, to win the fame, win the prize for that which is going to fade away. It will not last. Even the greatest legacies will not last. People eventually are going to forget who Michael Jordan really was and what he did. 
how much more focused should we be who are dealing with eternal matters? So we see here ultimate reward. So can I ask you once again, what are you striving for? The Olympic athletes in the Isthmian games, the Isthmian races that were, that were held near Corinth, they strove for a celery or a pine crown. See an example of one right there. That nice green crown would one day fade, would turn brown. It's like the roses that you give men, your wife, on Valentine's Day. They all crumble up, right? That's your excuse not to get roses. It would fade. Well, it's not just for the crown, though. It's for the recognition. The recognition would fade. In two years, there would be another Isthmian Games. And what if you lost that race? Or there would be someone else to overshadow you, to break your record. When you compare that to the imperishable crown that awaits those who finish the race, there's no comparison. That's why Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, 7 and 8, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. In other words, he's saying, I was not disqualified. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. You could read that, the crown which is righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to also to all who have loved His appearing. The imperishable crown is of such weight, that's why James in James 1 and verse 12 says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Think of the race, man. You're tired. Your legs are cramping up. You're going to give up. You're tempted to give up but yet you remain steadfast. It says, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. In Revelation chapter 2 and verse 10, Jesus says to the churches, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Crown of righteousness, crown of life, they're all talking about the same thing. The eternal inheritance of those who follow Jesus. That is what awaits us. No matter what sacrifice we are called to endure on this earth, no matter what we may have to say no to because we know it will hinder us in our spiritual life, it is so much worth the know that there's no comparison. So as we close, we look by application. Matthew chapter 6 tells us not to store up for ourselves things that will fade away, things that don't really matter. We're to seek first God's kingdom. 
Are you living for what truly matters? Are your eyes on what awaits you, your eternal inheritance? Or have you allowed yourself to become so distracted, whether it's like what Paul has been talking about, the demand for rights? Or the seeking out of simple fleeting pleasures or whatever it may be? Have you allowed that to get your eyes off of the finish line? The first century philosopher Seneca says this once again about athletes. And if this is true, if he makes this comparison just about temporal things and and how we need to, to, to keep in proper perspective things, how much more when we know Christ? He says this, What blows do athletes receive on their faces and all over their bodies? Nevertheless, through their desire for fame, they endure every torture. And they undergo these things not only because they are fighting, but in order to be able to fight. Their very training means torture. So let us also win the way to victory in all our struggles. For the reward is not a garland or a palm or a trumpeter who calls for silence at the proclamation of our names, but rather virtue, steadfastness of soul, and a peace that is one for all time. Seneca was not a follower of Jesus. What Seneca is basically saying is is what Paul is saying just on a moral do-good level. Let's be good people. Let's have these virtues in our lives because those are so much more important than the fame and honor of being an Olympic athlete and all that they endure. But if we take Seneca's same argument, this first century philosopher, and we say, no, there's something much greater than just being good people. We are followers of Jesus. We are a city that is set on a hill. We are a light in a dark world. And we are going to live individually and we are going to live as a church with our priorities intact, with our eyes on the finish line, with a focus to what really matters and not all of these distractions that can take our eyes off of the main thing. We are going to be this kind of people because we are servants of the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. What greater motivation could we have? As we close and we think about Palm Sunday, I once again want to bring to your attention not ourselves, but the person of Jesus. Hebrews 12, verses 1 to 2 says this, Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. But we run this way, not looking at ourselves saying, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it today. No, we look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. As you think about today, the worship as Jesus enters Jerusalem, as you think throughout this week, Jesus endured everything 
because his eyes were on the finish line. The joy that was set before him. That which was eternal. He endured all of the pain, all of the sacrifice, all of the hardship, knowing what was his. The path to the crown was through the cross. And we as Jesus' followers, the path to being co-heirs, co-rulers with Christ is through our taking up our cross and following Him.